Hey everyone, what's going on? This is Jim coming to you from the coronavirus pandemic. It is late April, April something, 29th, I think. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what day it is anymore. I have not been, I have not been plugged in. I have not been watching the news. It's, I, uh, yeah, I don't, um, there's, I guess there's some value to being informed, but I feel like it's, you turn on the news and it's the same roughly the same story every day. They just extended the shelter in place in San Francisco uh, till the end of May. So we have another four weeks of just hiding out in our homes and just watching television. So, yeah. I kind of wish before all of this, I had invested in not only a musical keyboard, but a, a more comfortable desk chair It'd be nice to have a longer couch too. I have a little love seat thing, which I just happened to get from the person who I got all my furniture from. It was moving out of my building and uh, I saw his lot on, uh, I think it was next door. Like I'm selling all my stuff. I was like, I'll, I'll just take all of it. I need to furnish my place. I've been living without any furniture for months. And uh, yeah. Stuff wasn't perfect. You would do a little bit better to like go pick your own things, but uh, you know, problem is it's um, I don't it, in my building it's hard to get stuff moved in. So uh, anyway, I thought I would talk a little bit today. I never know what I'm gonna talk. I don't always come into these things with an agenda. In fact, I rarely do. I just sort of turn on the thing and start talking. My brain goes wherever the hell it wants to. Um. Yeah, one thing I've been thinking about is, I've mentioned this before, but I've been reading Carl Jung and his whole bit about the collective unconscious. There are elements to our psyche that are innate to us. Like they're almost genetic. And if that's the case, if there's something innate to us, then it must be genetic. Um, something in our brain. And I'm really curious what neuroscience has to say about that. Like what biological basis is there for all of that? Like if that's if that's true, what can we establish from? I don't know what we know about the the biology of the brain. I haven't found too much looking around. People do seem to mention it, talk about it, but um, I'm really really curious about that. Ah. Uh, yeah, but outside of that, um, yeah, so I know that I talk about, yeah, let's talk about this, actually. I talk about religion a lot, and I write about it a lot, and I, I used to be really into it. Like I used to be, for a couple of years, I attempted to, to be a practicing Christian just to kind of give it a trial run in my life. It was a pilot program, if you will. I was like, let's see, let's see how this works. And I've since gotten away from it. And I, I definitely have sort of a, I don't know, a chip on my shoulder about the whole thing. Like it, it bothers me. And you might wonder why that is. Uh, I guess I'd like to talk about why that is. I don't want to like really badmouth. I don't want to talk about why I 
it isn't true so much as like, why do I want to believe this thing? Like, why do I have a passion for this? Why does it, why does it matter to me? Why do I care? And I can, I can, I can tell you exactly why there are, you know, definitely personal reasons. Um, I think if, if I had to give a, like an introductory paragraph, so to speak, like if I had to summarize it in advance, I would say that the way it, the way it seemed to me is that this, this life, uh, here on earth in this universe or whatever, um, if we really live forever, if there is some part of us that goes on after, after death and we go to some infinite realm where we exist indefinitely, then the 80, 100 years or so, whatever you get here is an infinitesimally small portion of overall time. Meaning that it really doesn't matter how you spend your time here on earth. Now, of course, if you believe that where you end up after this life depends on how you behaved in this life, uh, then, of course, it should affect how you live your life. Maybe that's the problem. I, I think it's, if you believe you should be focused on preparing for eternity, then whatever time you have is, uh, should be used for that here on earth. You should be preparing for that. Like you shouldn't just be using your time here to make this world better, to make your life everything it should be. You shouldn't be seizing on, it just, it puts your focus on the life after this one. And so the fact that I kind of absorbed that, and I think to some extent, whether conscious or unconscious, I operated by that for maybe the first 30 years of my life, roughly speaking, I feel bitter about that because when I finally investigated it, looked into it, and so what I discovered is that there really is no evidence for any sort of life after death. That would be really, really nice. It is something I would certainly love to believe. Uh, I would certainly love to believe that there is no hell uh, as a part of this, um, that there isn't anything uh, that merits um, being punished for eternity. Uh, but yeah, the thing is there's, there's no evidence for that. I, I've, I've gone looking into to my satisfaction. I haven't found anything that backs that up. Um, nothing whatsoever. Um, outside of anecdotal, you know, near death experiences, uh, wishful thinking mythological conceptions, there's no real hard evidence that there's anything after this. And it seems like the evidence is to the extent that it can point any direction and you can extrapolate and make a conjecture. It doesn't really seem like it. Like, so the first question is what part of us would survive death? The notion of the soul and the whole, the whole idea of the soul, like there's some essence to us that is not physical that would persist after the body dies, that comes from like the Greeks, that comes from Plato. Um, 
it's really difficult to, to cling to that in the light of modern neuroscience. You know, like if um, somebody's brain gets damaged, like Phineas Gage is the big one. He, he's the one who had a railroad spike driven through his brain. And his whole personality changed because it, it severed a connection uh, between the left and right halves of his brain. Anyway, it damaged the part of his brain that's responsible for um, regulating emotions. I don't know. I, I don't know the parts of the brain. They all have such weird names. If you're a neuroscientist, you have to remember some strange names like default mode network, nemulistic humans, the prefrontal cortex, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. There's no intuition behind these names. Like I wish they just named them after what they did functionally. Anyway, so yeah, Phineas Gage gets the part of his brain that's for controlling behavior, it gets damaged. And so he becomes a whole different person. So because the hardware gets altered, um, the output of the, I don't know if you can say the software, these are imperfect comparisons, but the hardware is damaged. So the way the computer operates changes. And so the question is like, well, I guess in that question, is there even software? Is there even a constant uh, program that's running? You know, is there, what is Phineas Gage's true soul? Was it who he was before the brain injury or after the brain injury? What gets preserved and goes to heaven? You know, it, it seems to me, if you look at that example, other examples, we're, we're not, we're not souls with bodies, we just are bodies. And the soul proceeds from some material uh, thing. And this, I guess, gets back to why do I, what is the biological basis? What is the material basis for the collective unconscious? Can you, can you discuss that question scientifically? And if you do, I wonder how it changes the concept. I wonder how it alters our understanding. But, you know, um, so yeah, the afterlife. I, I really wish I had spent the last, the, the, the first 30 years of my life with a different understanding of what this life is and really to what extent we should prioritize it and to what extent we should prioritize things in our own life. I am bitter about that. I haven't quite forgiven the powers that be that led me to believe this. And I, I imagine the reason I go around wanting to talk about it and say, look, question the whole thing, question, the, like, question its usefulness to you, question its overall veracity is because I, 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 I want to be speaking to young people and I don't want them to abandon their faith if they feel that they need it, but I don't want them to cling to it because they feel that they have to because they believe that it's true. And so that's why I would, this is why I would describe myself as being an enemy of Christianity. I wouldn't describe myself as being an enemy of any particular Christian. Uh, 
but I'm definitely opposed to the, to the, to the ideas. And again, I, I want to reemphasize, importantly, that I wouldn't use political ends to do this. I believe politically, in terms of the relationship between the church and the state, the state should guarantee religious freedom completely. Yeah, the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, that's, that is perfect. I don't see how you can improve upon that. But if I'm talking to an individual uh, who believes this or that, or is walking around preaching, evangelizing, as it were, the good news, yeah, I, I take exception to that. And, you know, again, free speech. Uh, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in favor of an evangelist being allowed to do what they do. But I believe in counter speech. This is the antidote. If, if, you, if there are there are people who are preaching something you don't like. And I've, I see, I use this as an example. It's extreme and I'm not comparing the two. I'm not comparing religious people to Nazis. But if there is a white supremacist who is speaking in your town and you don't like it, yeah, there is no prior restraint. You do not shut the person down from speaking because of you don't, because you don't like what they have to say. You go protest outside their place, outside the, the venue where they're speaking. You offer counter speech. You, you go put out your own message. We won't stand for hate in this town. Counter speech is the antidote to speech that you do not like. Um, it's not shutting somebody up. It's just offering an alternative message and trying to offer it as persuasively as you can, and effectively as you can. And that's really what I'm interested in doing. I kind of wonder how I would do that. Um, but again, this is this is the basis, and I, I, I really, it is something that is emotional for me. It's not something, I, I'd like to say, I, I, I've read philosophy and I've, I've studied theology and studied the Bible and I've come to this conclusion and I, I just rationally, coldly believe what I res regard as the facts. No bias whatsoever. It's just, but that isn't the truth. That's not the way human beings work. I don't think that's the psychology of human beings. I think we, uh, I think we are driven by emotion. And I'm no exception. That is certainly me. Uh, and I don't, uh, I don't like Christianity. Now, of course, I have, I have touched upon this earlier, but I have, I have, even when I, <laughs> I, I always like to avoid being the stereotype, right? So I think there were many, many years in my youth in which I was, I kind of felt that Christianity was true, but I didn't want to move towards it. I didn't want to embrace it fully because I didn't want to be the stereotypical God guy, you know, walking around like, have you heard of Jesus yet? There's too many of those people. We don't need people like that. 
We don't need more people like that, is what I always thought. And so I was, I was very slow to embrace it in any significant way. And then I got away from it. And I remember even when I was kind of like, I don't think this is true. I don't think I can embrace this. I was very slow to approach atheism for the same exact reason. Because people who are atheists are just, they foam at the mouth. They don't make cogent or logical arguments. You know, they, 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 like the world doesn't need any more people like that either. I was like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be like some trope. Even if I happen to agree with them. So, yeah, it's, I haven't fully embraced, I never really fully embraced either extreme. I never was quite fully a Christian. If at some point you'd put the question to me, like, do you believe in the resurrection? Like there was this guy who came back from the dead uh, 2000 years ago. I'm not sure I would have ever said yes. But yes, I believe that is true. I think I revered the Nazarene as being a moral preacher who was ahead of its time. It was something more than human. It had something to do with this, this God that we believe we are speaking to when we pray and so on. But I never quite got, like, you used to put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear that I believe all of this is true. No. The challenge for me was figure out which parts of it are true, and which parts have been elaborated or exaggerated just to, uh, for dramatic effect, for the sake of the narrative, for the for the forceful impact of the narrative. That was what I set out to investigate. I was like, there's truth here, but I don't know how much of it is true. And I want to investigate that. Ah, yeah. Where was I going with this? It's like I have trouble keeping my... Yeah, I've slowly been getting better at this, but I've been getting worse. Like the, um, just the, my train of thought. Like I set out to make a point. I actually do have an okay job of that. Like you can branch. Like you say, well, I'm going to go off on a tangent for like, 20 minutes about something else, but you come back to where you were and you put a placeholder in. Um, yeah, it's early. I didn't quite get restful sleep last night and my coffee is still working its way into my central nervous system. So, hey, if I'm, I'm kind of stumbling around, I have to beg forgiveness of the listener. Um, I don't know why I say um either. You know, I don't think we have such a, I don't know, we have such hatred of like um, the word um, like when you're speaking, you shouldn't say it. In the context of a podcast, me just sitting here in my apartment talking into a recording device, uh, you don't need ums or ahs or anything. I probably would do to cut that out. I probably would be a more effective speaker if I didn't use those, whatever part of speech they are. Um, um, there it is. But when you're speaking to someone, it does actually have utility. 
if, if there's a possibility that somebody else you're, you're speaking to could take the reins of the conversation and interrupt you, if you say, um, it is a way of holding your spot. So if I'm not quite done speaking. And I think it's necessary. Like, you could communicate that with nonverbals. You could tell just by looking at someone's face that, okay, they're not done talking, generally. But that's not always immediately clear. Um, and it's not, it's not as though even if you are clear that people are picking up on it. People are notoriously bad listeners, not only to language, but yeah, to nonverbals. So it makes sense that there'd be a verbal equivalent of that. Like, hold on, I'm not quite done talking. So I, I don't, I don't have this hatred of the word, um, like it has a use. I think if you're in the habit of saying it, I don't know if it's bad, it's not because the word itself is bad. It's because you're the fact that you need to stop and, and ask to have your place held, like, hold on, I'm not done talking. That might, that might speak to like some other problem in your conversational style. Maybe the kinds of people you, if you're talking to the kinds of people who won't give you space to make your points and you feel the need to, I don't know. It seems like I don't see it as being a problem. Sure. Speech is more effective if you don't do it, but can only be so perfect. One thing I've opened myself up to when talking out loud is to, I'll sometimes start making a point a certain way. And then just like halfway through it, I'll stop and be like, no, that's not the right way to say it. And I'll double back and just start over the sentence completely. Like, you know, the way I was phrasing that just wasn't going where I wanted it to just quickly abandon it and move to an alternative approach. I used to feel very self-conscious about that. Like I, like if I started articulating something even halfway through, if I realized, no, there's a better way of saying this. I'd be like, well, I, I want to follow through on what I committed to. It's much easier if you just, if you figure out a way of saying something better than you started saying it, just to go back and start over. You know, the people who, if you do that a lot, if that's, if you're constantly, you know, re-editing yourself, like using the verbal whiteout, so to speak, you know, that, that can get old very, very quickly. Um, there's um again, but it doesn't, I don't see it as being a bad thing. I know. But yeah, where was I going with the, uh, yeah, so atheism, I never really fully embraced atheism either. And part of it is because I didn't want to be like the angry atheist. Like the world is full of people who claim to be atheists and they're all running around talking about how individualistic they are and how unique their beliefs are. I think no, no, you have some ideology. You have something you're trying to sell. Uh, that's it. You're preaching a religious message. And I, I really would rather not do that. I'd rather preach an alternative, you know. I, I don't just want to say, you know what? Religion is wrong. You should abandon it if you're listening to this. 
would say, you know, there's other things you should embrace that I think have a lot of value and have more value than religion, and they're at odds with religion. Therefore, embrace those things with the understanding that they're going to be incompatible with faith, with religious belief. That's what I'd want to say. I'd want to say, here is, here is a sufficient alternative. And ideally, that would still meet the needs of whatever it is people need from their faith. I do believe religion has utility. I believe Christianity has utility. There's a reason people do it. And that's what I want to understand. What is the mechanism at place? What are the alternatives to addressing that? And what are the ones that are sufficient? I know that there's a book called uh, Waking Up by Sam Harris that talks about spirituality without religion. I've read some of other some other books by Sam Harris. I probably would be well advised to read that particular one. I'm sure it has some interesting points in it. Um, I don't know. Like he, I would rather read that than a lot of other things. Like I don't want to read Deepak Chopra. They're just some new agey, spiritual, mystic kind of things that I, I don't feel inc inclined towards. But Sam Harris takes to such a hard line against, I don't know, like I, he doesn't, he's never really touched upon Young from what I, from what I know. And that's what I'm most curious about. Like the, you have Carl Jung, later Joseph Campbell, men in these veins who, who were, they took a more scientific approach to their respective fields. But they certainly did not decry religion as being some sort of delusion. <clears throat> I think that's what I, I, I don't, that's what I object to. The, the notion that religious people are simply deluded, that there's somehow a lack of rational functioning in their brains. I don't think that's helpful. I think that is potentially divisive. And I have no interest in looking somebody in square in the eye and say, you know, your belief in God is based on a hallucination. Like it, it's, it, it, the thing is, it is real to them. You can't put someone in their place. You have to put yourself in their place before you can really address them. And I, I, I certainly don't think, I think every generation needs its opposition to religion. Every generation needs its Spinozas and Thomas Hobbes or Thomas Paine's or, you know, Christopher Hitchens and uh, Sam Harris, like those kinds of people. Every, every, every generation needs these intellectuals who are, who are taking a hard line opposite approach. It's not as though they're going to win. We're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and live in their world. Uh, all they're doing is pushing the ball in the correct direction. But me, I'm pathologically focused on, you know, I'm a Gemini, so I try and see things both ways. And I'm like, where, where's the harmony that we can, where's the common understanding we can reach between us? But, uh, you know, Bill Maher ended religious. Uh, his film about religion from about 13 years ago, saying that, like, 
people who are not religious have to stop being so tolerant. And I, I think that there is some merit to that. I forget who made the point, but the idea that there are lots of people out there who are not Christians in the traditional sense, like they do not embrace Christianity. But if you criticize Christianity, they will be the first people to come at you and defend the faith. Just because it sounds like your criticism of it, it equates to religious intolerance. And so they will defend it even though they don't fully believe in it. And I think that this has given fundamentalism quarter in our society where it does not deserve it. I think fundamentalism has to defend itself. It has to stand itself up on its own two feet. It has to make a case for itself. And it can't just hide behind this, this idea that, oh, you know, what I choose to believe is my business and I don't have anything to prove to you. This is just my faith. And, uh, you know, it's really impolite for you to be criticizing my faith. This is true, but I've had enough people who are religious come up to me and tell me, you know, you need to go to church. That uh, I, don't, uh, I don't buy this argument fully. If they're allowed to evangelize, if you're allowed to go make disciples of all nations, okay, well, I get to come at you and say, defend your position. Again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mobilize the government in this way. I wouldn't say, let's, let's send soldiers into people's houses and burn Bibles. I do believe in religious freedom. And on most of my days, I sort of wake up and don't think about it. It's like, well, whatever someone chooses to believe and practice in their own home is their business. Even if I'm talking to someone, just sort of, yeah, whatever you want to believe, you can believe. But on the other hand, those sorts of things, even what you believe in the privacy of your own home, it does spill out of there and it does affect things. So on the one hand, where I would like to say, I can turn a blind eye to it and let it go because, hey, who's it hurting? what you do inside of your own home. Uh, it does, like whatever effects that has on individuals, uh, they do become sort of collectivist under, like when people leave their homes and go to a church and worship. And so the thing sort of coalesces and aggregates and it does have impacts beyond just what happens inside of the family home. And I think that they would say the same thing about us, about non-believers, that ultimately a lack of religious faith, like even if you're just believing it in your home, it affects society as a whole. I've heard that argument. So the corollary has to be true. And if they're going to make it their business to come after my mind, I think it's my business to go after theirs to some extent. I don't know to what extent this is healthy. But I do think, I do like the fact, as much as I don't like the, necessarily the tact of the, the new atheists, I like the fact that they have broken new ground and like sort of opened up the territory so that now 
if you are an atheist, there's less of a social stigma in coming out and saying it. Like, I, I'm a heathen. I don't adhere to any major monotheism. Tw like 20, 30 years ago, if you did that, you might be looked on as, well, then you're not a moral person. That seems to be changing. There are definitely plenty of circles in this country where you will still get that sentiment. If you say, I don't believe in any kind of God, people will kind of look at you sideways. And yeah, that's problematic, but it, at least there are places now where those people can congregate, and sort of discuss ideas freely without fear of persecution. It's been a long time since people were persecuted uh, in this country for that, but not that long. And it's certainly not true most places in the world, or a lot of places. So I, there is a question that I, I do have, and this is this is what I don't, I don't fully understand to what extent religion might be necessary. But the argument that I hear that it's funny because I was talking to somebody like my, my mom's best friend growing up, they, they're still in touch. And she has a son that's maybe 10 years younger than me. And I was talking to him. He's an interesting guy. He, um, yeah, he works for a conservative think tank as a marketer in Washington, D.C. I think I know which, there's no reason for me to identify which one he is, but really smart guy, really interesting. Uh, I remember I offered to exchange emails with him. I was hoping to like have some correspondence with him because he definitely takes the hard and fast conservative um, approach to political thinking, which I wish I had more familiarity with. But he's he's also a devout Christian. We had some brief conversations about that uh, last Fourth of July, and he mentioned Jordan Peterson. I, I don't Christians fall back on Jordan Peterson so often, and Jordan Peterson has been very very clear in his interviews that he doesn't believe in the literal truth of Christianity, but he just what he says. I think his standard line is that he acts as though it is because he feels that the the stories of the Bible have allegorical or metaphorical truth. And if we throw those off, the, like the fabric of society will collapse. It's very weird that people who take a, a, a very firm religious position, like I believe in this, I have faith in, God and Jesus and all that, that they would, that they would point to Jordan Peterson and say, Hey, because he's, all he's saying is that religion has utility, not that it's true. If you're pointing to him as your guy, I think you're already making a concession you don't want to make. That's what I find odd about it. Um, well, he makes a lot of points. I could see, I could see why. I can see why they would point to it, because there are some questions he raises that might be problematic and difficult to answer. But I've been thinking about this. Um, 
so it, it seems to me that what I hear is that, uh, okay, so if you need to, it's not that somebody at the top devises the Torah. It's not that Moses says, I'm going to set these rules in place and it's a power grab. Um, I think to some extent it was done for the benefit of the Hebrews. Like if it, if it wasn't a divine metaphysical authoritarian father setting down these rules, if it wasn't Yahweh, uh, then it was Moses. And I don't think he's doing this for power reasons. I think he's doing it for the good of the people to some extent. Like here are the rules you abide by. If you do this, you're going to survive. Like we all sort of have this idea that there's a culture we live in. If we value it, we want to preserve it. Religion is how you, is one very, very prevalent way of doing that. It tends to be the, the de facto way, unless there's some other elements to culture you can preserve. It is the educational system. It is the value system. It is the legal system. When you don't have all these other things, that's what does it for the Hebrews. And so whatever's going on, these things sort of, these structures, these rules in the Torah, they sort of emerge. Like here's a generalization of all these specific cases codified in writing in a set of stories that you, you can use to sort of have cohesion of the tribe. So it sounds like it arises organically. And then this is argued as now that we have these writings, these are a precursor to Western civilization. Now, of course, I've mentioned this before, but if that's the case, it is at best an initial boundary condition in a chaotic system. Like if you were to start with, if you destroyed the world as it is today and you just started over again with the Bible, there's no guarantee that you would involve, you would evolve to Western civilization. Like if you consider the way that the Greek philosophy that we have from antiquity, the way that that has uh, influenced the direction of Western civilization, if you were to not preserve that, but to only start with the Bible, you would end up with a very, very different civilization. You wouldn't necessarily arrive at the same terminus of you have the United States secular government. That's not codified in the Bible. So that's, I think that's the concern. The argument I hear is that from the utilitarian perspective, like Jordan Peterson saying that there are, there's value to these mythologies and they arose organically. They were codified into writing. And if we throw them off, if we just abandon them entirely, then our value system degrades. You end up with nihilism. What I'm curious about is if it's that these religious strictures arose organically from what was going on. I guess it's kind of looking at Voltaire and saying, okay, the, the whole notion that if God did not exist, we would have to invent him. If God dies in Western civilization and there is this inborn psychological need in the Jungian sense to have 
a counterbalance to materialism if spirituality will sort of coalesce where there's a lack of it because human beings need an understanding of the psyche then if we threw off Christianity wouldn't something else emerge wouldn't that just naturally be the, the end wouldn't that just have to happen and it, maybe it's terrible in the meantime like maybe you do end up with nihilism maybe there'd be a lot of pain and suffering which you could regard as unnecessary if we hadn't thrown off Christianity But I don't, I, I, it's, I wonder if it isn't, you know, there's a short-term cost that you invoke for a long-term overall gain. I like the culture we have now. I like the legal system we have in the United States, the political system. I think maybe our emphasis is too much on the economics and on making money. It's certainly not perfect. I do like the, the capitalism, what it's given us. I want to see that written back. I want to see all of that coded, codified into a mythology. And certainly not one that claims to be the final revelation of God, but just one that, one that we can use to make sense of the world. I do think that's what we need, is a mythology that takes into account modern environmentalism. The understanding that, yeah, we need to take care of the earth. Any mythology that, that falls back on Mother Gaia, I feel like that is what we need right now. Environmentalism seems like it's very science-based. But we need a mythology that says this is our home. We should be taking care of it. And we should be figuring out how to do that. That should be a priority. I don't know. I don't. I wonder if there's any. There certainly is the notion of Mother Gaia. And I guess we we have traditionally said, like there are there are there are gods that uh, control agriculture, control fertility, control the storms, the weather. And it was always we have to appease these gods. We certainly have to figure out what to do in order to appease, I don't know, to put a deity onto the overall health of the earth and say that this deity is pleased or not. And if this deity is not pleased, our home is going to collapse or potentially become drastically uninhabitable. I think if you codified that, and that became something that people practiced, I don't know. Uh, I was watching Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth series. I watched the first episode, and he's talking about in order to become something new, in order for there to be a resurrection, in order for you to grow into something new, there has to be a death first. Like there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be this notion of you stop being who you were 
in order to become something that you need to be. Look, as a culture, that's what we need. I honestly think that whatever, that would be my overall argument, is that whatever, whatever we need right now to persist as a species, it goes beyond Western civilization. It's higher than that. It's much broader in scope. And the old mythologies of Christianity, despite what strictures they've given us, are not enough. Where they're not enough, they're just they're just plain incorrect. I can see that they have value. Maybe it's not immediately clear to me where they have value, but we need we need to replace it with something that does that same exact function. But it seems like things things this is not where you have revolution. This is where you have evolution. It seems like every sort of major religion that crops up and captures mind share is not something altogether new, but an extension of what came before. Christianity just is, it arises in the top soil of Judaism. Islam arises in the uh, top soil of the other two monotheisms. Mormonism. You can't just start fresh. You can't clear the canvas. What I'm really waiting for is for somebody to do what Joseph Smith did. I'm waiting for there to be somebody who stands up and says, here's how we, here is a new revelation. And it codifies the things that we need to prioritize right now as a species. I wonder if that's even possible. The notion that people, a people, a tribe of people, if it's the Hebrews or whoever, coalesce around a creation myth. Is it too big to say there's a common mythology for all of mankind? People talk about a global government. What about a global religion or a global mythology? Is that and I don't mean that everybody has to practice the same thing. I don't mean it's enforced. But that there is there is a mythology that speaks to the commonality of the species, and it's not tribal. I don't even know if that's possible. I don't even know if that is cognitively achievable for the human race. The brain is limited in what it can do, like Dunbar's number. You can only really have a special relationship with 150 people at most, like really understanding who they are, empathizing, remembering things about them. You can really only do that with 150 people. Beyond that, the brain is just cognitively overwhelmed. That seems to hold uh, pretty much everywhere for everyone. And of course, you, you can't just say, well, maybe the brain could evolve over time. Like there could be selection pressure so that people who reproduce are have a higher Dunbar's number. But one, it's not clear that that, would pre that pressure would necessarily apply itself in modern civilization. 
I don't think you need to be able to know more people than that in order to reproduce. And it's not clear to me that the brain could to, could do that if you wanted it to. It's it's certainly like neuroplasticity, notwithstanding. There's only, there's only so much there's only so many upgrades you can make to the hardware, even if the hardware itself is pretty resilient. Yeah, I don't know. I'm talking about some pretty lofty stuff here. But yeah, it's kind of I do wonder about that. Like why is it why is it we need to preserve our existing mythologies, the traditional ones? Yeah, no, Nietzsche is often invoked. Of course, he said God is dead and not not in a celebratory way, but a, you know, he was lamenting the fact where our value is going to come from. We always have values and they always come from somewhere. And they seem to sort of emerge in a way that best serves the age in which they're promulgated and the people to which they are given. If you got rid of all Christian traditionalism and stopped relying on the Bible for your morality, your value system. I think it's inevitable that something else comes into its place. And I, I think it, it might be a mistake to say that we can plan for that. It, it would be a mistake to say, all we need to do is get a committee together and decide what our new value system is going to be. I, it's an interesting question. I wouldn't say it can't happen, but I do wonder to what extent, if you're going to say we're going to get our moral values from an, a rationalist mindset, we're going to establish them somehow. Does that work? Is that good enough? Would that actually take root in the human mind? I think that's the question. You're, you're talking about human beings. Human beings still say to this day that there were, there were cases of Halloween candy being poisoned or having razor blades stuck into it. Sometime back in the 80s. So parents have to check their Halloween candy when their kids bring it home before their kids can eat it. Like this, the urban legends, the psychology of urban legends is, is fascinating to me. I would like to, there, there was, there's, a, there's an essay written by Carl Jung about UFOs, um, which, is in a, which is in a book that is way too expensive for me to purchase right now, being unemployed. But he, 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 doesn't, he obviously doesn't validate UFOs, but he says, here's the psychology of it. He explains, here's the appeal, here's why we want to believe in these things. This is what I'm curious about. It seems like every question I have, I might come at it like sounding like a philosopher. I might privilege, you know, philosophy over science. I might want to look to on, you know, philosophical underpinnings 
of what's going on in popular culture. But I think what I'm looking for is, is psychology. I think usually the questions I ask, the things that I puzzle over are, are psychological in nature. What is it about human beings? Like why would an individual want to do that? And yeah, there's probably a lot I don't understand and could benefit from knowing about group psychology how mechanisms operate in the aggregate a diffusion of responsibility when there's a uh, a soccer riot for example those are always the things i wonder about people people believe things that are weird urban legends ufos cryptozoology why why, why would you want to, why would you want to be an anti-vaxxer? Why would you want to believe that vaccines cause autism and it might be better to let your kid die of a, of a disease that is known than to get autism? What put, what puts a person's head there cognitively? Like, what is it? I don't know. I honestly, uh, of course, of course, I don't know. That's why I'm doing this. If I knew, I'd be having a very different kind of podcast. I'd be, uh, be like teaching everyone. Anyway, that's. Uh, I guess this has been pretty a singularly, singularly minded. It has a single focus, single subject. Yeah, but I wanted to get that off my chest. There, there are there are reasons. I certainly don't I don't claim to be cold and objective and just analyzing facts and putting forward facts, you know, as though I as though I know. I, I see myself as being human amongst a bunch of humans. I and I don't see myself as being altogether better. Like again, there's no reason to draw this comparison, but because I don't think religious people are like Nazis. I want to emphasize that before I make this point, but there's, when I was in college, I had a class that was about disasters. Uh, that was the focus of it, it was like about uh, natural disasters, man-made disasters. Like we had to read uh, Outbreak or whatever, like I think it was called The Hot Zone, but it's the book that the movie Outbreak uh, was based upon. Uh, we had to read about Chernobyl. Chernobyl? Chernobyl. Uh, and the volcanic eruptions. I'm trying to remember some of the specific examples. We had to read Isaac's Storm. We had to read about the Galveston hurricane around the last turn of the century, like 19, 1900-something. Um, but I find that class fascinating. I, I took that, I remember seeing the that in the course manual. Like, yeah, you learn about like, human death and suffering. I was like, all right, sign me up. That sounds great. 
just looking looking to pad my senior year with some interesting stuff. That was one thing that actually leapt out at me. Like I need a humanities credit. This one sounds good. It'll be a nice counterpart to business law and taxation and God knows what else I was taking that semester. I was like, good, there'll be one interesting class. So yeah, I took that class and I remember our final project was we can pick any disaster we want. We had to like write a lecture about it, but everybody had to give a presentation about it. But you had to like write something. You had to write like a like historical fiction or an essay about whatever disaster you wanted to cover. Um, so I wrote about Jamestown the original settlement because I had seen a documentary on PBS or something about Jamestown, the original settlers that came over and, and settled in that area of Virginia, like 1605, whatever it was like that, that time was a very, very difficult time. Like they were just in the wilderness in a land they did not know on completely unfamiliar terrain. The winters were brutal. There was starvation. There were Indian attacks. Like they're on someone else's land and they're, they're being attacked and being killed by them. Yeah, they're, they're starving. They're dying. Uh, it was, it sounded absolutely brutal. And there were cases of, um, people digging up the dead to eat them, like a cannibalism, resorting to cannibalism because there was that little food to be had, really disturbing. And so I wanted to write a story about that. And I wanted, to, I took it to a much more extreme place. Um, I decided to make it about a love story, like a, a love story between two people who are on the settlement. And what I had, it, I didn't describe this in any detail. I just sort of alluded to it in allegorical ways, just sort of like off camera, it's going on. But one of the settlers loses his wife and he doesn't immediately tell everyone. He just sort of pretends she's still alive, still has conversations with her, sort of in a Norman Batesian way, and still for a time gratifies himself with her uh, lifeless corpse. I had some very dark ideas. I liked, I like to flirt with this, like as much of a, as much of a Pollyanna as I was, I was really obsessed with some dark ideas, but I had to go up and present this in front of the class. And I kind of just explained it simply like, here's the story. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a fetishist. I'm not, I don't, I don't get off on necrophilia. I was like, I just like the disasters. This is a disaster class. I like disasters that happen in the human mind. As a, the professor has been reading my papers all semester, she'll, she'll attest to this. I like, I like that sort of, I don't know, moral hazard that our brains sort of just have built into it. And I did mention Nazi Germany. I said, you know, it's very, very easy for us all to, to look at that and say, yeah, that was done by people a long time ago who are nothing like us. 
Okay, but it would be a mistake. It would be a grave mistake to say that, to say that, you know, all of you, and then I stopped myself and said, no, no, actually that we, I'm not, I shouldn't exclude myself from this, to, to think that we are any different, to think that if we were in Nazi Germany, that we would not have potentially perpetrated those heinous crimes. We are all capable of doing these dark things. And that was, that was interesting. In terms of like public speaking, there are certainly times I've gotten up and talked. And that's probably the one time I can point to where it's like, you, you're speaking in full of a, a room full of people and some of them are always fidgeting. Not everybody's paying attention. You know, but that was one, when I said that, like you are all capable of doing this terrible thing. Everyone was looking at me and everyone, I had everyone's attention. I just made a point that it just hit home very hard. I've never had that experience ever again, just that one time. And there, there were a couple of presentations on that same day. Um, and a couple of people who got up to speak after me mentioned, they alluded, like, like he said, you know, like, we're not, we're not angels. None of us are. We all have that dark point. Um, yeah, so I, th I think it, I think it had an effect. And I, of course, I still think that I'm, I'm very correct. I think that this is, this is the mistake we make. We, we find things in other people that we don't like. We find some way of differentiating ourselves. And that's just the explanation. I could never do X because I am not the kind of person who does X. That's a different kind of person. No. And this is, this is why I'm inclined to cut. I'm not that harsh on religious people. I oppose the ideology, but I'm not an enemy of any religious person because they're a human being. And I've certainly believed. Uh, I guess I'm just looking to help people have a born again experience. I want to help people find the truth for themselves. And if that's a religious truth, great, live by that. I think it's hard to establish that as truth, but if that's what you need, if that's really what you need, just stand by it, you know, be ready to defend it. Don't cower from, from defending it. Be ready to defend your position, whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, be very, very careful because you got this life. That's only this, as far as I know, this is the only one we have. And so you want to make the most of it. So I'm, I'm doing what most people do. There's, there's some things I wish somebody had said to me when I was a teenager. I can't say those things to myself, but I, 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 I very much clamor for saying them to somebody, I don't know, who is a teenager now who might benefit from hearing them. There is, of course, some part of me that would like to. It would be nice to be a writer. 
to be uh, somebody who has a book and is touring and speaking uh, or to be actually recording a podcast that people listen to uh, because it's useful. It serves some utility beyond just the person talking during the coronavirus pandemic. But at the same time, I, I don't know. The thing is, there is a part of me that would like that just for my own selfish ends. That's the point. Like there's some part of my ego would like that. Would just like the notoriety, the fame, like the ability to be known by that many people. Of course, there's that part of me. I'd be hard, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a human being where that wasn't the case. But there is a much smaller part of me and it's a part of me that I think has been waxing as of late. Like it is kind of on the rise, but the sense that I would like to have an audience to speak to. I would like to have more influence. I'd like to be able to say things and have people listen I would like to do the work to earn that trust of a group of people that I could speak to because I want to have a beneficial influence on their life. As cynical as, as you can be about how, how many people there are trying to carve out a path for themselves by um, writing a self-help book. I'm pretty sure the intent there is almost always genuine. Much in the way that, you know, people who are pastors and, and reverends and giving sermons and who run churches, I think there's an earnest desire to help people. They're trying to help people the way that they know how, according to their own principles. I'm not cynical in the way that I look at it and say, well, they just want to make money. I mean, if, if that's your take on things, then you don't understand how the world works. It's like saying, I want to be a criminal. I want to become a, you know, a, I'm going to join a gang so I can make lots of money. No, if you're at the top of this, if you're L. Ron Hubbard, yeah, you're making lots of money. Lots more than you could doing a lot of other things. But everyone in the middle? Like if you're just like a pastor running a church in a local community somewhere, you're like helping people cope with the death of their loved ones, marrying them, you know, performing baptisms, being supportive, taking confessions every week. You're not doing that to make money. And it may be based on what I regard as misinformation, but it's not, it's not malicious. I'd like to think that there's a secular alternative to all of this. One that, uh, I don't know, would allow somebody to, it would teach people in a community how to live their lives according to principles that were more grounded in some sort of empiricism.
Yeah, well, this has been useful. I think I've hit upon a few new ideas that I hadn't thought of going into it. God, this is fun. Something in my hall, like I can hear what's going on. Sometimes I wonder, like people are walking by my door while I'm sitting in my place just talking to myself out loud. They probably just assume I'm on the phone or something. But there, there are moments, like there are things that I've said throughout all these podcasts. And it's like, if you were to walk by at just the right moment and hear me say that, you would, of course, have to wonder, what the hell is the context for what I just heard that guy in his, say in his place? Like, who is he talking to? What is he talking about? You just kind of stop and double back and listen. Like, well, what, what the hell is he saying? But yeah, I can hear I can hear people in the hallway faintly. Um, and there's like, I don't understand it, but some mornings I will hear somebody. It sounds like there's somebody who lives down the hall from me just opening and closing their door. I kind of wonder what, what, what that is. Like one morning it was just happening over and over again. Like they were, I, I, I was like, are they trying to fix the lock? on their door, like their doorknob, like they're sitting there with a screwdriver tweaking it. Like, okay, does it close now? They let it close. Still something wrong with it, pull it out, tweak it again, then let it shut. It sounded like they were just doing this for an hour. And I could faintly hear it. And whenever their door shut, it would like make my door kind of rattle a little bit, uh, just seismically. I was like, what the hell is going on over there? Uh, it's been uh, it's been sunny the last few days. I have been enjoying just going and sitting in the sun. I know a dermatologist would be like, "Don't do that. Limit your exposure." I have I have been trying to just yeah thrive on exposure. But it's uh, looking rainy today. It's it's very cloudy. We're getting some misty droplets. I think we're gonna get some outright rain. Which sounds good. I uh, I make a point of going out and standing in it. I mean, why not? Just enjoy whatever comes your way. I've got this uh, I've got this hat. Because um, for a while I was riding around on those lime scooters, like you can rent. Uh, you know, a, a scooter by the minute and just cruise around the city and then just where, whenever you're done with it, you just lock it up, dump it somewhere. Really useful way of getting around. It's, this was revelatory when I discovered these um, as one possible option, but it was because I had to get somewhere in the rain fast and I wanted to minimize how much time I was in the rain uh, and the scooter made the, the most sense and it worked out very, very well. But I wanted to like, minimize how much how much rain I got on my face and head uh, just because if it, I have glasses so if it's raining out like that'll that'll cloud up my vision and I won't be able to see and that's a deal breaker ladies so I got myself this hat which is this thing you strap on because you strap it on under your chin and it rests on top of your head and it's basically like a little umbrella so it's an umbrella it's like it's an umbrella hat and it looks so dumb. Like it's got, I, I imagine, I'm 
cruising down the street on one of those scooters with this umbrella hat on in the rain. I know people have got to be looking at and saying, what the hell, man? Like, I realize it's, it's practical, but isn't there a limit? <laughs> I don't maybe I, I don't know I, I honestly I don't care but I will I'll put that on if it's raining I'll go out of my my terrace outside my place and just walk around in a circle in the rain with this umbrella hat on in full view of I don't know how many other apartments overlooking mine from across the street look down see this guy with this umbrella hat on just walking around in a circle in the rain when he doesn't have, he could be inside watching television, but no, he's outside walking in the rain. I haven't fully embraced my eccentricity. I need to lean into that more. And the older I get that, the older I get, the more I do that. When I was 20, I really cared about what other people thought. I tried to be like, you know, smooth out the rough edges. Uh, sort of. But I don't do that so much anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I can see myself, like, I'm not quite there yet. Like, I, I have to look presentable when I go out in public. Um, like, if if I had a house and I had to go out to the end of the driveway to get the newspaper every morning. I would not be going out in my bathrobe with a cup of coffee in one hand, unshaven, just hair disheveled. I'd be getting fully dressed, you know, shower, and then going out to, uh, to get the paper. But I can see myself headed that way. There's, there's going to come a day where I was be like, you know what? I, just don't care. I want to read the paper and have, you know, have some coffee before I shower, before I get dressed. I know my socks have holes in them, but I just don't care. You know? uh, I don't know when I'll get there, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. But I, I, I definitely embrace the weirdness. Like, why not? People are too uptight. People are too, I don't know, concerned with presentation, I feel like. Not enough free spirits. I remember saying that to uh, the last girl I dated. Like she was, um, she was an oddball dresser. We were walking around San Francisco. I remember making that comment once. I was like, you know, you dress really uniquely. It's kind of like, you just don't give a... And I, I kind of sounded like, it felt like a neg when I was saying it, like I was undermining her, but I meant it in earnest. I really did. I was like, I appreciate this about you, that you, you're you not looking around at what everybody else is wearing and saying, I got to dress that way too. He was like, you know, I, this is what's comfortable. I'm going with it. Kind of jealous, actually. I don't know. I'd be happy to dress more comfortably, but I just don't know what would be more comfortable. I I really hate sweatpants. I don't understand sweatpants at all. 
I haven't owned a pair of sweatpants. Well, I do have some pajama pants. I don't know if those count. I haven't owned a pair of sweatpants since I was in, I want to say eighth grade. I hate them. I've never, they're not comfortable. To me. I don't enjoy lounging around in sweatpants. And it's not just, it's not just the stigma of them. I just don't like them. I would rather, I, I really would rather just wear jeans. I can lounge around in some jeans. I guess I don't wear tight jeans. I don't wear skinny jeans. Maybe that would make it different. But I so in Santa Barbara once I I was yeah there there was a weekly five k that happened like you'd run along the beach uh, you'd basically run up up the beach and then back down um, starting from like one of the main beaches. Uh, in downtown Santa Barbara. I'm trying to remember what that was called. I want to say night moves, but it wasn't that. Anyway, the the people at my work were doing that and they invited me to go jog that 5K. And so I was like, okay, cool, I'll do it. And I had no athletic gear whatsoever. I hadn't done any running. I wasn't a distance runner at that point. Um, so I just showed up with sneakers and like a t-shirt and jeans. And I have never gotten so many weird looks in my life. People were just looking at it like at me down in my pants and then back up at me. They're like, and people like asked me, they're like, are you really going to run a 5k wearing those? I was like, yeah, I don't have any other pants what do you want me to do you want me to go birthday suit like what is what is what's your advice and they're like isn't that going to be a problem I was like we'll find out I guess but I mean, that was one of those times like I've you get past high school you get past like elementary school like people stop making fun of you or ridiculing you like it's just whatever adults are adults if you're, you know, if you're hanging out with people in their 20s and 30s and they're still like ridiculing other people for what they do, you know, get some new friends. That's just dumb. But I mean, this one time, this is probably the one time in my adult life showing up to a 5K to run in jeans and then doing it. I felt like I was back in elementary school. I'm just getting, I was getting looks and comments that were clearly like, this is, you shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. You're just too much of a weirdo. It's probably probably the one time I've, I've felt that. I've really gotten that distinct sense uh, since I got out of elementary school. Everybody's suddenly a critic, you know. And I didn't care. I, I still don't care. I'm making the observation. I think it's, I think it's funny funny that that was it as of all the things I've done in my adult life that I could be eyed critically for I, I wouldn't have expected that to be the thing most things I've done people 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 don't care what you do you know that's the great liberating fact when you get to an age and you're like you know what nobody cares I saw like that as a meme online it was like a 
a reason to be depressed. Nobody gives a shit. And on the other panel, it was a reason to be overjoyed and happy. Nobody gives a shit. Same fact, you can interpret it two ways. But it's very liberating when you get to an age and you realize, yeah, you know what? What uh, what used to bother me, what used to feel alienating and isolating now feels just freeing. But of course, people do give a shit. Uh, it's not entirely true. And if you think that's true, I encourage you to show up and run a 5K wearing denim. Ah, what am I going to do today? Yesterday was... Ah, yesterday was strangely long and short at the same time. Like, I didn't fill my day with anything productive. Outside of just sort of meditatively sitting around. It seemed to go by fast, but it felt like a long day anyway. I don't know. Certainly not feeling motivated to, to do anything. It's been two months. So I've been sitting around two, for two months unemployed, pretty much entirely in my apartment. I'm sort of starting to wonder when it's going to... I don't know if I should wait until this shelter-in-place thing is done, like just as soon as people can start going out, back out again into public in a limited way. Uh, if that isn't the right time to uh, start looking for a job, or if that's like too late. I haven't quite settled on wanting to stay in San Francisco. Though. I can't figure out why I would stay here. I mean, the only reason I've been able to come up with that I, I feel that resonates with me is that San Francisco is certainly a much better city. It's much more beautiful. It's much more cultured. There's a lot more to do here than there would be in almost any other place I could move. And the weather is certainly more beautiful. But that's the only reason. I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's reason enough. It might, it might be. And the choice of jobs too. Um, certainly be, it's much, many more interesting possibilities here. But on the other hand, you know, I, I have thought about it. Like I keep saying this, but I, I, I showed up at the Bay Area like four years ago and I was like, let's just see how it goes. To the extent that I've seen how it went so far, if I'm looking back on the last four years and I'm being honest, it hasn't exactly panned out. I haven't exactly found my footing. I don't have a social circle. I haven't found my people yet. I haven't found the people that resonate with me. And I'm not sure they're here. There's something. There's something that there's some there's some some. I don't know what it is. I was gonna say vacu vacuity, like some, something vacuous about tech culture that just doesn't. That's not fair because it's certainly not vacuous. People are wickedly smart here. But there there is. There's just some, I don't know, some flow of conversation, some way that I just, I just don't fit with the culture here. And I've certainly met plenty of people I get along with. 
like one-on-one. -on -one. I'm looking at my my place at the sky. I just saw like a seagull. He was flying. He just sort of stopped over a building, maybe like 10 feet, 20 feet above the top of the building. And he didn't even have to flap his wings. He just sort of like angled himself, like shifted the balance from one wing to the other, tilting. He was just using whatever gusts of wind were up there to like slowly lower himself down onto the building, just descended. Yeah, this is what passes for entertainment. I don't even feel motivated to watch television. I don't know, like there's some part of me that just feels like that's the wrong thing to do right now. Not that it would be a waste of time no, it would be an improper use of time. It's not that I'm not motivated. I don't think you need much motivation to turn on the TV and just sit there and stare at it for two hours watching a movie. It just feels like the wrong direction of my energy right now. I don't know where, where it should be going, but. Could be attention span. I feel like my attention span has actually gotten worse during the quarantine. Like I have trouble focusing on anything for an extended period of time. I wonder if that's because of the way of keeping informed and connected to the world is now Twitter. I'll be on there for, you know, maybe 30 minutes a day. It's a good way of just getting little bits and chunks of, of something. I imagine that if you're using Twitter that habitually, and I never really have before, that would have to sort of chunkify your attention span, I would imagine. Things you consume can only be a certain length. I did make this joke on, on Twitter. That's probably true. I think the best uh, memento of this whole pandemic experience would be basically a book of tweets that you could like highlight you could go through all the highlights of the pandemic, like it breaking out, um, the stay in place orders being issued around the country, what things are like in other, other countries, what things are like in your city, uh, people's like various reactions to it, people praising, you know, the outpouring of support, people in local communities, the heroism we're seeing in the, um, in the medical community, the fact that people are, are working those shifts, just take care of the people that are sick. And, you know, some satire and memes added in for levity, just to keep the flow. I think you could, I think that would be a great souvenir. Um, of course, I don't, I don't know if we want to go back and relive this, but I, I do, I do wonder how how well we'll etch it into our memory. Um, this happened a hundred years ago, as people are fond of pointing out, and we certainly forgot the lessons from it. But by the time we got to 2020, we were not ready for this at all. 
even though people have been saying for years that it was coming. We'll get back to business as usual and we'll, we'll forget that this uh, had ever happened. Or maybe we won't. Maybe we will come up with a mythology that, uh, you know, says something more profound than we have dominion over all the animals on earth. Let's say, you know what? We have to pay respect to the microorganisms that um, very often hold dominion over us. We should respect that. But I don't know. Not that easy to create a new mythology. All right, I'm calling this one. It's been what we got here. Almost an hour and a half. Look at that. Look at me talking for 90 minutes. Look at you listening to it if you are. If anybody out there is listening to this, hey, thanks. Uh, sorry we're all suffering through this, this arduous thing. I hope wherever you are, you are, um, you're healthy. You're getting some levity in. Hope you're doing it. Hope you're making it through. Um, yeah, I wish you the best. And, uh, yeah, until next time, this is Jim uh, signing off. Cheers.